evening we're going to read from the Old Testament, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. Second Samuel 6 gives the history of the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem shortly after David became king. It's a climactic point in the history of David and of the kingdom of Israel, and it's one of the Old Testament types of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The entire chapter will be the text of the sermon this evening. This is the word of God. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bela of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of, fi- made of firwood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hands to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased. Because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they bear the ark of the Lord, when they bear the ark of the Lord, and it was so that when they had bear the ark of the Lord had gone six six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people 
even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself? And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children unto the day of her death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, of the big moments in the life of Jesus, the ascension may be the most easily overlooked by us. We tend to focus quite a bit on the crucifixion and all of the events surrounding the cross. We love to hear the story of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We are fascinated by the eventual return of Jesus in the future and the end times that are associated with that return. But the ascension, well, it's important, but maybe it's not the first thing you think of when you think of Jesus and the big events surrounding his life. Part of the issue might be that there aren't as many details given as to the history of the ascension in the gospel as there are recording the resurrection and the crucifixion. And there's not as much action in the story of the Ascension itself. As the book of Acts tells the story, one moment Jesus is walking with his disciples and talking to them about the kingdom of heaven on the Mount of Olives, and the next moment he is rising up in front of them, and he disappears behind a cloud while the disciples look on. So perhaps the Ascension is overlooked a bit. Yet the Ascension... Even though there is not as much history about it in the New Testament, and even though there's not as much action in the history that is given, is nevertheless the most significant event in the life of Jesus, that is, in the life of God the Son in our flesh, the Messiah. The ascension, the event that is recorded at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of Acts, really is the event to which all of those other events were, was aiming. The ascension is why Jesus was bold to face the cross, despising the shame. It was, as the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, the glory that was set before him in the ascension. The reason God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the immortal life of the new heavens and the new earth was because Jesus must be given the life of heaven where he was to ascend to the right hand of God as the high king. 
everything that happens in the Gospels is leading up to that climactic moment at the end when Jesus ascends into heaven, which even if to the disciples that was only a momentary event and Jesus quickly disappeared, was nevertheless a massive event in heaven itself. Read Revelation 4 and 5 and you'll get a sense of how that event appeared in heaven itself. And even when Jesus returns, though in a sense that will be an even greater revelation of his glory, he will return as the king who first ascended and took his place as the king of heaven. The ascension is a very significant and important event. And the importance of the ascension was understood well by the people of God in the Old Testament, perhaps in some ways even better than us. This event that we remember this evening was foreshadowed shortly after David became king in Jerusalem. It was foreshadowed when the Ark of the Covenant was brought from the house of Abinadab, where it had been in a kind of exile for many, many years, and led up to the heights of the mountains in Jerusalem, where it would reside For the years to come. When the ark ascended or was taken up into Jerusalem, it was more than simply a golden box being carried on the backs of the priests up the hills in the city of Jerusalem. But what was happening in a type and in a shadow is that God Himself was ascending. And that's why David wrote. Psalm 24, which we're going to sing as our last Psalter number this evening. But that's why David wrote Psalm 24 in these words to commemorate this occasion of the ascending of God in the ark. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So I call your attention tonight to this text, 2 Samuel 6, and our theme is God ascending in the ark. First, we will see that God was ascending of his own free will. Secondly, that as he ascended of his own free will, his ascension was in the glory of victory. And then finally, having ascended, He gave gifts unto men. So God ascending in the ark, first of his own free will, secondly in the glory of victory, and finally with gifts for men. So this event that our text describes was arranged to be a big and celebratory occasion. All of the plans were carefully put in place by King David 30,000 soldiers, the best in David's army, were amassed in formation by the house of Abinadab. King David himself was there along with a group of musicians who held all kinds of musical instruments. There was a specially prepared wagon or cart along with a team of oxen that would be driven by the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah, and Ohio. And then the ark was carried out of the house of Abinadab, set on that wagon or that cart, 
The music began to play, and the procession began to move in the direction of Jerusalem, the city of David. This was a big moment for Israel. If you remember your history, then you would remember that for years and years up to this point, the kingdom of God had been divided, it had been troubled, and it had been far from God. Before the time of David was the period of the judges, and the period of the judges was a period of constant spiraling downward and downward and downward until it came to its lowest depths in the reign of King Saul. Then Saul reigned for a while until he was killed by the Philistines in a battle, and in the, in the aftermath of Saul's death, the nation was torn in half by a bitter civil war that ensued between David, who was God's anointed, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. But now all of that was past. Saul was dead and buried. Ishbosheth was out of the picture. The civil war was ended, and David was sitting unchallenged on the throne of a unified 12 tribes of Israel. The promise of God to Abraham that his seed would inherit the land of Canaan was being fulfilled before the very eyes of God's people. And it was time for the ark of God, the ark which stood at the center of all of the worship in the Old Testament. It was the centerpiece in the tabernacle. It was time for the ark to come home, to ascend into the hill above Jerusalem, and to show that God is the king of his people. This was a big event in the history of Israel. The ark was placed on the wagon, the music began to play, and the procession began to move. But then everything came to a standstill. The soldiers stopped marching. The music went silent. And you can imagine there was a collective gasp that ran through the crowd as everyone turned to the spot where Uzzah lay dead. The road to Jerusalem was a bumpy one without the benefit of the asphalt highways that we're used to. The oxen apparently stumbled and that shook the wagon and the ark that was sitting on top of the wagon began to move around a bit. And oh, what a terrible sacrilege if the ark of the covenant should fall off the wagon to the ground. At least that was the thought of Uzzah as he reached out his hand and took hold of the ark. But that was the last thought that he ever had before the anger of God broke out upon him and he was killed on the spot, according to verse 7 of the chapter we read. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Now, why did that happen? Why did God make a breach upon Uzzah? This is the question in David's mind as he stood there, now humiliated, in front of all of the people, all of the procession, by the threshing floor of Nacon. That question, why? Why did this happen? Is a question that first made David angry. 
yes, angry, displeased with God. This was supposed to be a day of celebration. This was supposed to be a day in which we, the nation, honor Jehovah, the God who helped us. It's a happy time, a happy occasion. Lord, why did you do that? Why did you make a breach upon Uzzah, who was clearly just trying to help? Verse 8, And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. He was angry, but then his anger turned into fear and questions and doubts. Maybe God isn't happy with me as I thought he was. Maybe the Lord doesn't want the ark of his presence to come to Jerusalem. Maybe he doesn't want to be known as our king and as our Lord after all. Maybe God would prefer his ark stay far away from the city that is called the city of David. Verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? We can relate to the fears and the questions that David faced on this occasion in light of the breach of the Lord upon Uzzah. Just a couple of examples. Christian parents pour their lives into their children. They teach them the fundamentals of the faith. They bring them to, the, to the church and to catechism. They give them a good home to grow up in. And then some of those children grow up and they turn their back on it all. They live a life of unbelief, a life of wickedness, a life far from the Lord. And perhaps they even perish in that unbelief. And parents, parents might respond to this by feeling hurt, perhaps even betrayed by God. Didn't you say your promises to believers and their children, Lord? Then why not to my son? Why not to my daughter? Or perhaps this, a new believer comes into the church enthusiastic and full of zeal. He or she gets involved in the life of the church and eats up everything that the preacher is saying. But then time goes on. He runs into roadblocks and more roadblocks and his zeal is thwarted. And he discovers that the people in the church are still sinful Sometimes they act hypocritically. And maybe his response to all of this is by feeling unsettled and by feeling afraid. And questions enter into his mind and doubts. Maybe believing in Jesus and joining the church isn't what I thought it was going to be. Maybe God does not favor me as I imagined that he did. We can relate to David in the struggle that is expressed in verses 8 and 9. Displeased. Displeased because of the breach. Displeasure that arose really out of his misunderstanding of these events and his misunderstanding of whom he was dealing with, the God, the holy God of the universe. And then also fear. Fear and doubt 
Is he really my God? Am I really his child? Well, what did David learn and what do we learn from this whole incident of the breach upon Uzzah? It's usually said that God did this to Uzzah on account of a violation of rightful worship practices. And there is truth to this. If you read the Old Testament, especially the books of the law, so the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you will know that there were specific laws that stated how the ark and the other articles of furniture in the tabernacle, but specifically the ark, were to be moved. In the ark itself, there were these golden rings that were placed on the sides of the ark. And then there were these golden rods or poles that had been constructed that corresponded to those rings. And it was specifically stated in the book of Leviticus and Numbers that the ark was to be carried by use of those golden rods or poles, not on a cart or a wagon pulled by oxen, which was the way that they found the ark many years before. The Philistines had used that method to transport the ark on a previous occasion. But God's word said, carry it by the poles. Carry it the way that the scriptures say. In addition to that, there was a specific family or group within one of the tribes of the Levites called the sons of Kohath, whose job it was to carry the ark and the other articles of furniture in the tabernacle. And these laws were clearly broken in this case. Instead of using the golden poles, the ark was pulled on a wagon led by oxen. Instead of the sons of Kohath, it was the sons of Abinadab who drove the ox cart. And this violation of the law then becomes the occasion that leads Uzzah to grabbing the the ark and steadying it. If the law had been followed... The ark never would have been placed on an ox cart and the oxen never would have stumbled that would have shaken the ark and caused it to move that created this occasion for Uzzah to reach out and grab it and meet his death. But the law was broken. We can learn some things from this story about how to worship God and the importance of worshiping Him rightly. What we need to take to heart And it's not only this passage, it's other passages in Scripture, but this passage, what we need to take to heart is that worship is not a free-for-all. It's not up to us to decide when and how and where God will be worshipped by us. It's not up to us to decide the details of worship when God has told us in His Word how He will be worshipped and what the elements of worship ought to be. It's easier, perhaps, than we realize to slip into a mindset that would overlook what the Word of God teaches about right worship. Apparently, David did not know of these laws, or if he did know of the laws and numbers in Leviticus, he was regarding them as not significant, treating them like minor details. But here's the warning. People get hurt when God is not worshipped in the way that he says that he wants to be worshipped. The result of this violation of the law is that Uzzah was struck dead. He was put in this situation that ought not to have been. When worship becomes a kind of entertainment in the church, 
and not what it is meant to be, which is worship of the living God according to His own will and precept, it doesn't end well. When worship becomes entertainment, young people decide they can find better entertainment in the world. And away they go. Worship turns into something other than the adoration of the only true and living God. It becomes really all about me, my needs, my wants, my desires, the things that tickle my interests. But this matter about worship is only part of the story and only part of the reason why Uzzah was struck dead. The more important issue is really what was behind all of this. The more important issue is that Uzzah, by reaching out and taking hold of the ark, was really interfering with God's work, specifically with God's ascension. What we must understand is that the ark was not just any article of furniture in the tabernacle. What was the ark in the Old Testament? Well, the ark stood for God. You children know about God, that he cannot be seen. And you know that we ought not to make graven images of God because God cannot be represented by an image. You cannot make uh, an image from stone or wood and say, that's what God looks like. God is invisible. So God told Moses to build the ark, which was a box, a wooden box, that was covered with gold. And this box or ark had within it three items. You might remember what they were. The two tables of stone on which the laws were written, the, the rod of Aaron that budded, and a pot with manna in it. But the most important aspect of this box is that it was to be placed in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the tabernacle, where only the high priest might enter one time of year, And something was done on that ark. Above the ark were two angels, that is, carved statues of angels, golden angels. And between those two angels was a tray. And that tray was called the mercy seat. And once a year, when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, or on, on the mercy seat. And that tells us what that ark was all about. What that ark represented was not what God looks like. It's, the ark wasn't God, like the idols of the nations. But it stood for the gracious presence of God with his people. That God is a God who forgives the sins of his people. That God is a God who shows mercy. That God is a God who spiritually now is with his people and dwells with them in his own house, in his own tabernacle among them. The point of those laws about the ark's movement was to show that God is not only with them, but he's with them of his own free will. God is not carried around on the backs of men or on ox carts like the heathen idols, but God goes where he wants to, God goes when he wants to, and God goes how he wants to. And so the ark will be carried according to the specific instructions of God. The Kohathites will carry him. 
whom God has dedicated to this work. And the ark will be carried on the poles that God has sanctified for this task. God is sovereign. God determines where he will go and where he will not go. And now, on this occasion, God is ascending into his hill. And there was a big danger that this event would be misunderstood by the people. There was a big danger that they would think that what's really going on here is that David, the king, is the one who is bringing God into his city. There's a big danger. They would think that David is the ruler and that God is the servant who is following David's lead, being placed where David wants him to go and doing what David tells him to do. And they would think that Uzzah is the man who saved God from a great humiliation. The very symbol of God's gracious presence was in danger of falling to the ground, that is, until Uzzah put forth his hand and saved the Lord from this sacrilege. And that could not stand as the final word on the matter. It's not that Uzzah was an evil man or even that he didn't have good intentions. And the point of this story really isn't to judge Uzzah. The problem with Uzzah is that he did not understand who he was dealing with. He was dealing with the holy God who made heaven and earth. He was dealing with the sovereign God who does what he wants, where he wants, when he wants. Uzzah didn't understand that. He did not understand the God with whom he was dealing with. Apparently, neither did David. Apparently, neither did anybody in the kingdom of Israel at that time. Until God made the breach. God was saying... I will ascend into that hill, but I will ascend of my own will. Notice then the difference in David's behavior on the second attempt. He's wearing a linen ephod. According to verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. The ephod was the clothing of the priests. And who were the priests? They were the servants of God. Now David was not claiming to be a priest. David was a king. And in the Old Testament, kings might not be priests, and priests might not be kings. That was reserved for the Messiah himself when he would come. Nevertheless, David put on an ephod. What he was doing by putting on that ephod is stripping himself of his royal robes, stripping himself of his royal dignity, stripping himself of any significance or worth or value in the sight of the people, and he was putting on himself the clothes of a servant, specifically of God's servant. What David was proclaiming as he danced before the Lord in a linen ephod is that God is the king who is ascending here, not me. It's God. 
I'm just a servant. That was the message that came out loud and clear. And in case we didn't catch it, David spells it out very distinctly for his wife, Michael. Michael, who despises David specifically for dancing in the linen ephod, humiliating himself before the ark and before the people. David says in verse 22, And I will be yet more vile than thus, and I will be base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of them, spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. In other words, I will go over and above to make it clear that God is not coming because of my power. God is not coming due to my wishes. God is not ascending because I saved him. God is not entering into his holy hill because I invited him to or did anything for him. He's coming because he wants to. He's coming of his own sovereign, free, gracious, and merciful will toward me, whom he has chosen as his king and toward his people. And that must be how we think of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ also, beloved. I think sometimes we act as though we are the ones who put Jesus on the throne. After all, we're the ones who believe in him, right? We're the ones who represent him down here on earth. We're the ones who serve him. No one would know anything about Jesus, the high king of heaven, if it weren't for the church down here below proclaiming his name, sending missionaries, and giving a witness to his glory Sunday after Sunday. But no, you did not put him there, beloved. I did not put him there. And if none of us were here today, he would still be where he is. It's of his own free will that he came to this earth in human flesh and suffered for our sins. It's of his own free will that he faced death and hell to show us the mercy of salvation. And it's of his own free will that he ascended to heaven and continues there for our interest as our advocate and as our mediator and as our king. It's not our zeal. It's not our diligent efforts. It's not our faithfulness. It's not our faith. He is where he is today as our head and representative, as our gracious Lord and Savior, because he wants to be. Period. End of story. That's not the end of the sermon yet. The fact that he ascended in his sovereignty of his own free will is what makes this an occasion of glory and victory to fully appreciate the victorious nature of this moment of the ascension of God in the ark, it'd be good to have a little bit of background. So as I indicated earlier, the ark has been in a kind of exile for about 70 years up to this point. About 70 years earlier, the priests in the tabernacle were awfully wicked men. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas used their position as priests to take advantage of the people of God, to steal from the sacrifices in order to fill their own bellies, and even fornicated right outside the doors of the tabernacle itself. 
And Hophni and Phinehas imagined that they could use God for their own benefit and their own advantage. So there was a battle with the Philistines. And the Israelites, along with the help and advice of Hophni and Phinehas, came up with an idea, a foolish and wicked idea. They said, let us take the ark of God with us into the battle against the Philistines. And if we have the ark of God with us in the battle, the ark which was supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies, and only move if God wanted it to move. But they said, if we have the ark of God with us in the battle, then God will be on our side. You see what they were doing. To them, God was no different from the gods of the nations, that is, the idol gods. And the ark was sort of like a magic charm. We can use the ark, which taps into the power of God in order to manipulate God's power for our own advantage. But of course, that's not how God operates. God is not one who can be manipulated and controlled by men. And so God decided to teach Israel a lesson, first of all, by letting the Philistines win the battle to the great humiliation and consternation of the nation. And then in that battle, Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the ark itself was captured. Then the ark was taken away. And in light of what we just said about the ark going where God wants it to of his own free will, consider what it means that the ark goes away. It's not that the Israelites lost the ark. It's not that the Philistines were taking the spoils of war. It's that God was leaving. He was leaving of his own free will, his own sovereign will. He was turning his face away from his people just as they had turned their backs on him. That's why a mother, the wife of Phinehas, who died in childbirth on this occasion, named her son who was born Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel. The glory being God. God is departed from Israel. God has left us. That was the message. It was a day of devastation and fear and sorrow. The ark was gone. From the battlefield then, the Philistines took the ark to their own temple, the temple of Dagon, their god, as a kind of trophy. What they are saying by placing the ark of God in their temple is, our God is stronger than their God. See, we won the battle, even though they brought the ark into battle against us. And we won, so Dagon must be stronger than God. That's what they thought when they went to bed that night. And then they woke up and went into their temple the next morning, and they found the image of their God face down on the floor in front of the ark. And they thought, that's strange. And they set their idol back up. But the next day, the same thing had happened. But now that, art, that idol had been broken to pieces. And God didn't let the Philistines alone when he was there in their cities by, in the ark. Plagues began breaking out. If they moved the city from, if they moved the ark from one city to another city, then plagues would break out in that city and in the next city. And the Philistines were so overcome by God who was plaguing them with all of these diseases that finally they put the ark on a cart with two cows and they sent it back to Israel. Then the ark made its way to an Israelite town on the border that was called Beth Shemesh. But the problems were not over yet. You see, this was the time of the judges. 
And God's people did not have knowledge of the Lord. They did not know who they were dealing with. And so the men of Beth Shemesh took the lid off the ark and they looked inside. And what did God do? He killed thousands of them. So the men of Beth Shemesh didn't want anything to do with the ark and they sent it away to the house of a man named Abinadab. And there it sat in exile for many years. When Saul became king, he was happy to let the the ark stay where it was, far away from him. And when David became king, he did not have opportunity to move the ark right away because he was busy with a civil war and establishing his kingdom. But now, things were different. At last, the enemies of God have been beaten back. The civil war was over. David has just captured the city of Jerusalem from the last Canaanite outpost, and he has made it his capital. And now all the 12 tribes of Israel are united behind him, and he's the king. And it was then that he began to make these preparations to bring the ark to his capital city, Jerusalem. God ascending in the ark, therefore, is a victory that comes out of the jaws of defeat. That's the, that's the important thing to see. You have to understand that there were many who surely thought the ark was gone. The glory has departed from Israel. The tabernacle, it's like it had a great big empty hole in it. There's no visible way to show that God is merciful to his people, that God atones for their sins. But now, here comes the ark out of obscurity. It had been in exile for decades. And here it comes, marching in a triumphal procession. And it's not just that the ark is recognized once again and becomes a part of the official worship of God's people again, but the whole point of this procession is that now the ark is going to be lifted up and it is going to become part of the life of the whole nation, which had been in the confusion of idolatry for many years. The ark coming to the city is the king coming to dwell with his people, forgiving their sins, living with them and dwelling with them once again. And the king who is coming is not David, but the king is God. That's why David goes dancing before the Lord with all his might. That's why all the house of Israel has gathered all of their instruments and they blow the trumpets and they make sacrifices of praise. This is a victory parade. That's what's going on here. A victory parade. God has subdued all of his enemies. God is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham many years ago. God is taking his place. You see, this is the way God loves to work. He loves to pull victory out of the jaws of defeat. Where human logic says the best way for God to be with his people is to help them win a battle against their enemies, God's logic says you're going to lose that battle until you learn who I really am. Where human logic says a true Savior is one who can escape the torture of crucifixion and death, God's logic says I will save my people from death by facing death head on and then rising from the grave and ascending. That's why the ascension of Christ is the true ascension that makes all ascensions of earthly rulers look like nothing in comparison. The ascension of Christ is a true ascension. It rests on a true victory. Victory over sin, over death, over hell. 
But of course, Michael did not understand this and could not understand this. Michael's the daughter of Saul, specifically identified as such. And she's the daughter of Saul in more ways than one. To Saul, glory meant power. Glory meant prestige. Glory meant the praise and honor of men. And so it was to Michael as well. Michael's understanding of glory is that David should be in the lead and God should be following behind David. That's the way Saul did it. Saul went on before. He did what he wanted to do. If he wanted to make a sacrifice, he made a sacrifice. He didn't care what God's law said. He didn't care what God said. He'll do what Saul wants to do. That's the way that men tend to think as well. That's the way human nature tends to think. The cross is foolishness. There's no victory in suffering. There's no victory in losing a battle. There's only a lot of pain for your trouble. You need to make your own glory. It's vain to hope for the glory of God in Christ. And that's why Michael will have no part in the glory of the kingdom of God. That's the significance of that last verse of the chapter, that Michael had no child. It might seem like a harsh thing to read, but the point here has to do with the fact that Michael is David's wife. She's the queen. And any child that Michael has will be the heir of David, who sits on David's throne. And God will not have a descendant of Saul sitting on his throne. The glory of the kingdom is not for proud men and proud families like the family of Saul. The glory of the kingdom is for those who love the glory of God and who believe in it. The glory of the kingdom is those for those who believe that all glory belongs to God alone and that it is our privilege simply to participate in it. The glory of the kingdom is for those who believe that God is a God who chooses the poor and the weak things of this world in order to confound the wise. The glory of the kingdom is for those who believe that God can take a shepherd boy like David and raise him up and make him his right-hand man. Those are the heirs of the kingdom. Those are the ones who will enjoy its benefits, not the proud. Not those who are interested in the glory of the kingdoms of this world like Michael was, but those who recognize themselves to be servants, servants of the glorious king. They also will be the beneficiaries of the gifts that the ascended God gives to his people. Just remember how it was with Saul when Saul became king. Remember, the people wanted a king like the other nations. They begged Samuel, give us a king like the other nations. And they got what they asked for in King Saul, didn't they? Saul was a king. He was a man with power. And what did he do with that power? He took from them. He took. He took their young men and conscripted them into his army. He took their daughters and he made them cooks and maids in his palace. He took their money. He took their food. 
He took their supplies. He took, he took, he took, and he never gave. That's evident from the way it was when Israel was faced with that Philistine army and that giant Goliath down in the valley. We know the story of David going down and beating Goliath. But where was Saul? Where was the king? The one who should be defending the honor of his people? Defending the honor of God? Giving his life? Laying down his life for them? He was cowering in his tent. But notice what David does on this occasion of the ascension of the ark into Jerusalem. What's he do? He gives. To every person who was present, he gave a slice of bread, he gave a good piece of meat, and he gave a bottle of wine. And he gave it not just to the men, that is, to one, a household, but he gave it to the women also, showing no discrimination and great abundance and generosity. Yes, David is the king. That means he will call on the men to fight in the battles, and he will desire the women to use their gifts and call them to it. But he is not, first of all, a king who takes. He's a king who gives and gives abundantly. And notice, it's not really David who's doing the giving. Again, God is the one giving here. And David is at pains to make this clear. Verse 18. As soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He stood up before them and he blessed them in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then, having blessed them in the name of the God who had ascended into his holy hill, he dealt among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel as well, to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. David was acting as the representative of God who ascended to be with his people. And he's making clear that the God who ascended is a God who is abundant, who is gracious, who gives and gives and gives now, bread and wine are obviously symbolic. Even in the Old Testament, it's not as though David was teaching the prosperity gospel here. The people understood these were tokens. They were tokens of the goodness of God, their king, who was good to them and their families, who made them rich and abundant in the land of Canaan, which was the land of promise. But the true blessing isn't the bread and the wine. The true blessing is that he's there with them in the city. The true blessing is that he dwells with them. He protects them. He forgives their sins in the mercy seat. He loves them. The glory is not departed anymore. The glory is there among them. Right there in the city. And they share in that glory. But he's right here with us too. Beloved people of God. Of course, we understand the ascension means that Jesus is no longer on earth with us in human form, but he is with us. He's with us by his Spirit. And because he is the ascended Lord who has all power in heaven and earth, and whom the Father has given the Spirit, he has gifts. Gifts to give 
to his people wonderful gifts, the gift of salvation, the gift of life, the gift of the knowledge of God, the gift of hope. And he wants to give us these gifts, and he does give us these gifts of his own sovereign free will. He works them in us. He makes us willing in the day of his power. Beloved, isn't he glorious? Isn't he good? Don't fall into the trap that so many fall into of imagining that God needs your help or our help in order to establish his kingdom. Don't be upset or despairing when it turns out that God's plans are not the same as your plans. Sometimes that makes us grieve. Sometimes it makes us upset. And we have to work through those questions. But don't be angry with God. Be thankful. Believe. Be base in your own sight. Lowly, humble like a servant. So that you can know and appreciate and understand all the more the glory and the exaltedness of God. The God who became our servants in Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant and descended even to the death of the cross for us and only then ascended into heaven as our king and representative. Believe in him, trust in him, follow him. Our God, beloved, in Jesus Christ is ascended and we live in the day of his power and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ. We're thankful that it is not our works, our decisions, even our faith that puts Him in heaven, but it is He that has gone there, He who has gone there of His own free and sovereign will and in His mercy toward us. And it is He also who reaches out by His Spirit, sovereignly to save us and to draw us near to Him in His grace. We pray, O Father, give us understanding of His glory, the true glory, which is the glory of the kingdom of heaven, that we may not be dazzled by the false glory of this earth. And we pray, O Father, let us live our lives under the headship the authority of our sovereign, exalted, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.